Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I am your host, Rafal Matuszewski, and I got another awesome guest for you guys. Say hello to Jason Phillips. What's going on, man? I uh, I didn't even know that was the name of your podcast. I love it. That is, uh, I think I I think I saw it somewhere, and yeah. but that might be the best name of a podcast I've ever been on. That's great. Oh yeah, like I I can't remember how I got like the name. I think I was just like sitting down. I'm like I gotta get a name. I was just like swearing in my head. I'm like cut the shit. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's funny, man. I mean, you know, with uh, with my former brand, you know, one of the brands I co-founded, um, you know, we had the shirts that said "Driven as Fuck." Yeah. And I like, I literally, I remember it was like one in the morning, and I was doing something, and I text my designer, and I'm like, I need a shirt that says "Driven as Fuck," <laughs> and you know, like it's just every now and then, man, like you get this moment of inspiration, and it sticks, and you run with it. But I think that's cool, man. I like it a lot. I actually like like having a swear word like halfway through something because then that like gets someone's attention so quickly and they're like, oh, yep. what are you saying? Let me let me hear you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's authentic. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I've never and, you know, if anyone's ever heard me talk and obviously everybody that hears this today, like I don't censor myself and it's not because I think it's cool to swear or anything like that. But it's like that's me. Like I've I've been that way since I was 19 years old and you know, I'm not changing for anything. I mean, I've done public speaking engagements where I've been asked to tone the language down and obviously I comply. Um, but you know, if you want like the full message, then, you know, let's, let's just go at it. And and sometimes those words come out, sometimes they don't, but Hey, impact is impact. Definitely. So kind of tell the audience who you are, what you do and how you got into this industry. Yeah, man. Um, so I guess a little bit about who I am. I'm, um, I'm kind of the the go-to nutritional consultant in the CrossFit space right now, um, and and so that's been an evolution. You know, I've I've started nutritional consulting all the way back, um, you know, when I was like 19, 20 years old, um, and ironically, that comes off the heels of an eating disorder. So when I was uh, just 19, I was anorexic and I was 118 pounds. Um, so, you know, everyone listening, picture a five, nine, five, ten guy at 118 pounds, not a very good look. Um, but yeah, and so it was a pretty gnarly time in my life. Um, you know, I obviously like, you know, food and your relationship with food and your body image, it can, it can kind of, you know, roll itself over into other aspects of your life. And so it's definitely in a bit of a downward spiral. Um, but you know, fortunately for me, I came out of it. And I ended up going to school for exercise science with a concentration in fitness and nutrition. And, you know, the passion that you have for something, like when you overcome something so severe like that, it's, it's immense, man. And like, I, it's been my mission from day one, um, of, you know, overcoming anorexia to pay it forward. Like I know what the diet and training world did for me, um, for my outlook on life and for building me and the character and the person I've become. And I want to pay that forward to as many people as possible. So even when I was in school, you know, my buddies would want help, like, you know, gaining weight or, or getting bigger or, or, you know, my female friends would want to get leaner. And I was like the first person to be like, yeah, like, let me help you. You know, and it was never a monetary thing. It was genuinely like, I want to fucking help people, man. Like, that's it. And, and even today, like, I, there's people out there that come up to me all the time and want to ask questions and, you know, my girlfriend would probably tell you that being out with me is a pain in the ass because I will literally sit there and talk with every single person that wants to talk to me. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's my passion, man. It's, it's what I do. I don't ever want to do anything else. And fortunate for, you know, fortunately for me, 
um, I've, I've built a pretty successful business with it. Yeah, I love that. I love coaches that had their own experience with something like that. Like even yep. for myself, because I used to like I'm at five nine and I used to weigh about two hundred fifteen pounds in high school. Lost all the weight and I went down to I think it was like one forty. And yeah. people noticed like, holy crap, how did you do that? And I was like, I clued it. I'm like, oh my god, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help people lose weight and get through that struggle. Yeah. And yeah, because oftentimes it's related to so many different things, right? Like it's yeah. never as you know, as a coach, it's never the weight. It's never the number on the scale. It's never, you know, it's something so much deeper. Like it's a sense of self-value, self-worth. Like, you know, you've been told something in your life that just absolutely crushed you and destroyed your body image. And, you know, when you dig into those kinds of things, man, like it's, it's powerful. Yeah. I think we have the advantage where you can actually, you've been there where that client's been, Yes. It's like some coaches, like, you know, they played high level sports all their life. They almost made the pros and they're like, oh, I guess I'm going to become a coach now. Yeah. Well, and, that, and I would honestly say that's the difference between a good coach and a bad coach, right? Like, I mean, I write articles all the time where I'm like, hey, like, you know, pick up your Instagram feed and scroll through it. And how many jackasses are promoting a $99 templated diet? Yeah. And, you know, you probably see fucking 15 of them. And, but like, what are their credentials? Like, great. They got themselves fit. Like, I don't really think that's that impressive. I don't. I mean, you know, I, if you can rehab, if you can rehabilitate someone's metabolism, if you can take an overweight person with insulin resistance and get them lean and, and fix that insulin resistance, you know, if you can take somebody that's in a disease state, get them healthy, if you can improve athletic performance and improve body composition. Okay. Like now talk to me because that's a skill set. you know, um, just because you have a six pack, like, doesn't mean that much to me. Yeah, it's funny when you go on Instagram or Facebook and all you see on their accounts are just like shirtless selfies every yeah. single day. And you're like, that's not really motivating. You're just like, no. You're just like, hey, look at me. I'm freaking awesome. You should trade with me. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, really, I tell people like, that's your cue to run the other way. Because if they're only promoting what they look like and not the success of their clients, um, that's scary. Yeah. Um, so like, what's your major philosophy on like fitness and fat loss? Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I tell everybody I don't have one, right. I think yeah. that my, if, if I have one philosophy, it's that every single person needs to be treated as an individual. Um, I think that where the game is short right now is in terms of real coaches and coaches that want to invest in their clients and get to know their clients and learn about them, the people, what makes them tick, who they are, what their metabolic history is, right? Instead of just having them fill out some half-assed piece of paper and then prescribing based off a template, um, you know, yeah, like it's it's becoming very apparent in, in today's state that yeah, you can make money online prescribing diets and prescribing training routines. But you know, I think the world is short of like true like real coaches, um, and and I think that's like you know that's where my philosophy comes in is you damn well better be able to build that relationship with your client. Um, I would say one hundred percent my method is predicated on human interaction, um, on communication. And, and then obviously moving into solid dietary principles, but, you know, before you even get into the diet and training, it's built on that human interaction. Definitely. So like what I've seen online for you, you're kind of more towards like macros. Is that your end all be all, or do you do other things with people as well? 
Yeah, I think that you have to be, you got to be a bit of a chameleon, right? I mean, like if you and I got on this conversation and you're like, dude, I'm never going to count a macro in my life. And I was like, cool, I only do macros, then I'm probably going to lose you as a client. Yeah. Now, some business coaches would be like, great, like stick to what you do. I don't really agree with that. If I really believe I can help you, um, then I'm going to find a way to help you. So um, I would say that my preferred approach is to use a flexible dieting approach. I definitely have seen lots of success with it. And I think there's a lot of education that goes in um, for the person. But it's not my end-all, be-all. Um, you know, there's, I can essentially make anything work if the person's willing to work hard enough. So for those who don't know, what is flexible dieting? Yeah, so, you know, back in the day, um, if you were dieting, it was like a very strict set of foods, right? It's like, oh, you eat chicken and broccoli or, mm -hmm. you know, fish and rice or, you know, whatever else. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I believe it was like Lane Norton and Joe Klazemski that brought it to the forefront. And they basically came and they said, hey, it's not really what you eat, but it's how much you eat. Um, and they brought to the forefront this notion that it's really – how much protein, carbohydrate, and fat do you intake daily? Um, and, and based on that, you could essentially fit whatever foods you want into those numbers, assuming you routinely hit those numbers. Um, you know, and if you look at like the natural bodybuilding scene, that's, uh, you know, flexible dieting is very prevalent there. The proof is in the pudding, man. I mean, those guys get more ripped than professional bodybuilders that are on drugs. Yeah. And, you know, so it definitely works. Um, I think it's becoming a little bit bastardized. And I think that... What was once meant to be like, hey, you don't have to eat the same boring shit every day. You can have a little bit of fun has now become, hey, how much shit can you eat? Um, you know, how many donuts and Pop-Tarts and fucking cereal can you fit into your diet? Um, and, and, you know, listen, that does still work. Like, I'm not going to sit here and argue that that doesn't work. But just because you look great on the outside doesn't mean you're healthy inside. And when I work with a client, we're not just looking cosmetics, right? We're looking cosmetics and long-term health and usually if they're a CrossFit client, performance. Yeah, I think that falls also like if you start trying to fit in so much bad food throughout the week in your diet, like you're almost more prone to like start binging and just get out of the whole, you know, oh, healthy Dude, eating. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've seen eating disorders built on flexible dieting because of that, man. Like I remember I used to watch like the bodybuilding.com forums and you know, these college kids would go on and they got nothing else to do, man. Like they're, you know, probably skipping class so that they can sit on the forum and posting food porn pictures of like their latest like yogurt bowl and cereal and whatever the hell else they're throwing in there. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I would watch and, you know, I, I would lurk, so to speak, and I would never really post. And it was just like I really wanted to see the psychology that went into it. And inevitably, man, like four to six months after these people's shows – they're nowhere to be found. And then four to six months after that, they come back and they're like, yeah, guys, like really had to get my head out of my ass. Like I had an issue with food and I'm trying to find balance. And it's like, you know, again, like any dietary protocol that creates massive amounts of obsession is not healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, first and foremost, man, like we're in this for something that we can sustain long term. If, if you can't sustain what I tell you to do to get your results, then I'm telling you to do something completely wrong. Yeah, like that's what when my clients come up to me and they're like, oh, so I've read about this diet. Like, what do you think about it? And I'm like, well, just ask yourself, can you do it for the rest of your life? Yep. And like, yeah, 100%. If, if the answer is no, then it's probably not that great for you. Yeah, yeah, it's all in the application too, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's, well, should I do keto if I CrossFit? I mean, 
because keto is really popular right now, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Dom going on Tim Ferriss' show and all of a sudden the whole world wants these ketones and then there's an MLM company that comes out with ketones and, you know, now the whole world's like, oh, the ketogenic diet's going to fucking cure cancer. And, um, you know, nobody even looks at the application. Like, ketogenic diet's great in certain settings, right? If you want to live a long time, yeah, it's very healthy, you know? If you're an aerobic athlete, sure. There's a lot of studies coming out that says it's great. Um some bodybuilders could use ketogenic diets pretty well, um, but if you know if you're in a sport that requires glucose, well, then no, don't fucking do it. <laughs> yeah, like you know. So I mean, I, I just think that sometimes we have to stop looking in such blanketed terms, and we really have to think a little more critically. Definitely. So now going back with macros, like for the average person, like what should they be focusing on? Like if they were actually taking the time to track everything, like what would be a good split from like protein, carbs, and fat? Actually, so one of the things you just said is, is the first thing I tell everybody. Um, you know, I think self-awareness in all aspects of life is going to help you win, right? And, and that's something that, like, I'm a big fan of Gary Vee. Anybody that follows me knows that I'm, I'm massively, like, entrenched in what he puts out there. I've, I've obviously been, you know, fortunate enough to, to meet up with him. But, you know, I kind of took that and I applied it to the dietary realm. And step number one is knowing, well, what is your intake? And, and you probably know it from being a trainer you know, somebody comes into the gym and you're like, well, what do you eat? Uh, you know, they're like, oh, I want to get bigger. And you're like, great, you got to eat a lot. And they're like, yeah, I eat a lot. Um, and then you have them log their food and they had like two meals. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but dude, I can't eat anymore. I'm full. Okay, great. But you're still not eating a lot. Right. So like at the end of the day, I think the first step for every single person out there that's going to undertake an endeavor is, well, where do you sit today? Um, are you, super low calorie or you super high calorie um are you in a decent caloric range but with terrible macronutrient composition i think that's first step um you know so then if i were to break it down into well what's a good um macro split you know i would turn the question right back on you well well, give me like the case study right like tell me the individual because if i sat out here and i don't know thousands of people listen to this podcast and they're like oh he said 30 30 40 yeah um that might fit six of them um So, you know, and, and, and so I really, I never speak in generalities. Um, I'm very big on, on asking lots of questions and, and knowing as much as I can about the individual. Um, and then we create that custom prescription. Uh, so we can do a case study right now if you don't mind. Yeah, no, absolutely. Happy to. Uh, so let's go with a mother of three. She's mm-hmm. done every diet that you can think of, and she still thinks that eating less than 1,000 calories is going to get her to lose weight, but she hit mm-hmm. a plateau and she doesn't know where to go, and she just expects results quick and fast, and we're trying to tell her that, no, it's slow and steady wins the race. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the reality is she's already living sub-1,000 calories, um, and so she's probably living somewhat in what we would call metabolic adaptation. And mm-hmm. so, like, you know, two, three years ago, that was mistakenly called metabolic damage, um, and, you know, obviously Lyle, being kind of the dick that he is, pointed that out and was like, it's metabolic adaptation, Um, but you know, so obviously everyone's using the proper words now, but basically like her body has adapted to living low calorie, but part of that adaptation is shutting down its ability to burn fat. Mm -hmm. Um, so really what I'm going to tell this person is I'm going to explain just that and be like, listen, you essentially have lost your ability to lose fat at this point. And we have to rebuild that first. Um, and I'm going to get her to buy into what I call a reverse diet process. Um, and now there's two, um, kind of schools of thoughts in terms of reverse dieting. You know, there's a school of thought that says you have to get your calories up to maintenance 
um, and then you can start dropping and creating fat loss. Or there's a school that says you can slowly, incrementally work your way to maintenance um, and then slowly bring your way back down. I'm more on the second school of thought because I like to take into account the mental component. So let's arbitrarily say she's eating 1,000 calories. Um, as a decent rule of thumb, you can start by increasing 20% of total calories. So my prescription to her would actually be to start at 1,200. But here's the beautiful thing about that. She's not going to freak out because I'm not telling her to eat 1,800 calories, right? Yeah. I'm only telling her to eat just a little bit more. Um, if she hasn't been in metabolic adaptation too long, we're actually going to see a very positive fat loss response. And by eating more, A, she's going to get a slightly higher hunger signal, which we know hunger is a very big sign of metabolic, uh, metabolic activity, right? So all of a sudden her metabolic hormones are working, leptin and ghrelin are starting to upregulate again. Um, and she's probably going to start to lose weight. So then we can slowly incrementally increase her calories over a period of time get her into an appropriate fat loss range or even maintenance range. Um, we're winning because we're getting her healthier. She's winning because she's losing the weight that she wants to lose. Everybody wins. Um, you know, we could go deeper and say, well, let's say she has been a metabolic adaptation for a long time. Um, you know, it's going to suck as the nutritionist because you're going to add calories and she's going to gain weight. She's going to think you're an asshole. Um, but what's the alternative? Go back to eating 800 calories and still not lose weight. Um, like let's fix the damage and then let's get you to lose weight. Um, the most extreme example I can give of that is I worked with a woman and I'm not kidding you, dude, for 18 months, she didn't lose a single pound with me, Jeez. but it took us 18 months to slowly reverse diet her. If I would have told her to, you know, go to maintenance calories on day one, she would have gained a ton of weight. Um, and she would have never trusted me again. So I really had to get her to buy into the process, understand the process. You know, I found peer reviewed articles that I sent her. Um, Minnesota starvation study is a great one. You know, it was like literally people are in starvation. Um, you know, you took them back up to maintenance calories and all metabolic markers came back to normal. Um, so it does work. It's just a matter of how are you going to approach it with a client? What's your relationship with that client? And that goes back to what I was saying earlier. If you don't build that relationship with your client, um, none of this is ever going to work. Yeah, I think people tend to fall into, like, they want themselves to suffer enough to be able yeah. to lose weight rather than, like, how about we start off slow right. and work up to it? <laughs> like, so I think there's such, a, there's such a connotation in the public that losing weight has to hurt. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're trying to get down to, like, 4 and 6% body fat, yeah, that's going to hurt. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, man. Like, your hormone output's going to go down. Like, you're going to be tired. It's going to affect sleep. It's going to affect mood. It's going to affect energy. But if you're just trying to get to, like, an appropriate, like, 8 to 10% range, like, that doesn't have to hurt. Yeah. And there's, there's no reason that can't be lifestyle friendly. Definitely. Like, I think Gary actually said this. is like, you want to play the game of the marathon and not the sprint. Always. Right? Like. Always. But, 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 you know, but people hire you because they want results yesterday yeah. and there's, and there's so many like eight week transformations, 12 week transformations. Right. And I try to, I, I broke it down one time and I said, you know, if you think about it from a, from like a theoretical perspective, if I, if you had to write a 12 week transformation program tomorrow and I gave you like eight avatars and I'm like, this program has to work for all, all eight people, all eight avatars. You're going to take the person with the shittiest metabolism and you're going to build it for them because you know it's going to work for the other seven, right? Because they can, you know, their calorie deficit is a higher number than that shitty person. So you're going to use the shittiest person. You're going to build it for them. So all these like 10 and 12 week transformations 
are predicated on somebody with a very poor metabolism and somebody with stubborn fat loss. So if you happen to be average in your ability to lose fat, yeah, you're going to lose it really quickly, but long-term, you're going to fuck your metabolism. Yeah. Now, how much does like eating behaviors play in a role of trying to lose weight, in your opinion? Oh, massively. Yeah. Um, I mean, habits are, you know, one of the things that I know John Berardi tried to bring to the public in, you know, precision was like the habit-based approach. Um, I take a little bit of issue with that because honestly, we all are today where we are because of our habits. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think first step again is creating that awareness. Well, what are my habits? And that's actually where food tracking for three to four days comes into play. You know, like I said, somebody could come to you and be like, I eat a lot. Um, Well, numbers don't lie, right? If you track your food and it says you only ate 1200 calories, well, you don't eat a lot. You might think you do, but the 1,200 calories that you just tracked are not lying to you. Um, So, you know, I think first and foremost, it's knowing, okay, well, what do we take in? Um, But yeah, man, relationship with food, like like you and I talked about when we were talking about the flexible dieters, you see these people that are like, well, how much shit food can I fit into my day? Mm -hmm. It really creates this really negative relationship with food that long term is just not going to work. Yeah, like I remember when I used to work at a big box gym and like everyone was doing a show and then especially the women, not so much the men at that point, but you know, they would do their show and then like, yeah, they're gone for like a month from the gym and they come back like 30 pounds heavier because they're like picking out on like a whole cheesecake to themselves every night. Yep. No, exactly, man. And you know, it's, it's funny, dude. So I, um, well, you're in, uh, you know, you're in Vancouver, and so Scott Abel was a really big like fitness guru up there, right? He's in Kelowna, mm-hmm. and he um, really like I think he was like ahead of his time with like dietary protocols. Really smart guy, and so he built what was called the cycle diet, and it was basically you live in a calorie deficit for six days, and on the seventh day, it's like your spike day, and it's, it's like your cheat day. Like you eat as much as you possibly want, and he has stories of like going to the cheesecake factory and eating a whole carrot cake, <laughs> and like. Like, Chris Aceto has, like, witnessed it. But by, like, seven days later, man, like, by baseline day, he was leaner. And so I did the cycle diet, and I worked with Scott for a while. And, dude, let me tell you, like, I was ripped out of my mind. Like, I walked around, and by bodybuilding standards, like, I had shredded glutes, like, walking around day to day. Like, I was fucking lean. But I got to tell you, my relationship with food became awful because all I wanted in every week was I got to get to day seven. Yeah. I got, you know, like nothing in life mattered, dude. I didn't care about work. I really didn't even care much about my workouts. It was more like I had to do them and burn enough calories in them so that I could get to day seven and like, you know, shove my face like full of shit. Yeah. I think a lot of coaches fall into that. Cause like that's, yeah, they've read that bun like a couple of years back. They're like, Oh yeah. Cheat day. I'm going to have pizza, pasta. And then like you're in a food coma for the whole day. And then it's Sunday, you're like, oh, I can't wait till Saturday. <laughs> yeah, that's it, man. Like, you know, the next day you're like recovering. You're like, oh, I feel good. You know, you're, you're kind of like a little stomach upset maybe. But, um, you know, then by like Tuesday, Wednesday, you're like, well, fuck, man. Like, when do I get more pizza? <laughs> yeah, honestly. But like I was reading um, John Romanello's book, uh, The Alpha Male. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it might be the second or third phase in the program. And they actually prescribe that cheat day on the one day but the following day you do a 24-hour fast and they were trying to like manipulate certain hormones and i was like you know like it's a i get it like it's a an idea and maybe there's a small population of people that are able to have that willpower but you know 
you know, average Joe down the street that just hits the weights heavy, picks up this book and he's like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I don't know if that's the best approach for someone like that. Well, I just think, I mean, again, it goes back to a statement you made, right? Like how often, like by doing this, like how long can you sustain this? And can you really sustain having a fast day in your life, the rest of your life? And I'm going to say the answer is resoundingly no. Um, but you know, it's, uh, I mean, I like Roman a lot. Like, you know, him and I have actually recently connected quite a bit. Um, and, you know, but again, internet marketing is internet marketing, man. You have to have a sexy tactic to sell. Yeah. Now, what do so. you think of actually intermittent fasting if we're just talking about that? Um, I don't think that it's anything like, I still think it comes down to overall quantity consumed in a day. Um, so from my research, and again, this is just like putting different puzzle, like different puzzle pieces together. I think it's actually a reasonable tool for fat loss, um, but I do not in any way think it's a great tool for muscle gain. Um, so I do think that, like you know, if you hit a plateau, um, all things being equal, calorically, it may give you like a little bit of a boost. Now, fasting protocols that I use for my clients are more on like the digestive health side. Um, I'm a big fan of, of keeping digestion healthy, um, using fasting and that's really like where I put it in with my athletes. But, um, in an athletic setting and a performance setting, I don't, it has no merit whatsoever. Yeah. Like I remember, uh, I think I was reading John Berardi's article when he's tried it and I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And ever since, I think it's been now four years that I've been doing it. It's just now a habit. And it just like, mm-hmm. I just noticed it just worked better for my schedule because I wake up at 5 a.m. every day and then train clients until 11. So it's like, now I don't have to worry about breakfast, mm-hmm. getting a shake in between clients on the treadmill, and then like starving at lunch. And now I don't have to worry about that at all. And then just boom, lunch is my first meal, eat a huge meal, and then throughout the day like that. Yeah, no, you know, I think that that's like, if you're doing it because it suits your schedule better, I think that's the reason you should do it. Yeah. I don't think that you should do it because someone's like, oh, this is going to 20x your results. Like, uh, sorry about that, dude. Somebody called my phone. Um, <laughs> no worries. I was so, like, what happened? <laughs> um, so, um, so I'm sorry. Where was I? Uh, fasting fits into your schedule and lifestyle, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. No, so I mean, I think that like, I think that like the beauty of intermittent fasting and even carb backloading to some extent and, you know, all of, you know, these like topics, it really brought into light that like, oh my God, you don't have to eat every three hours, you know? And, and that's something that like Lane and, and Eric Helms and, and all of those guys were promoting like quite some time ago. Um, you know, they were like looking into meal timing, but I, I'm glad to see it now, like in the public that like no longer is it believed the only way to lose fat is to eat every three hours. Yeah. And like, it's almost more visually appealing. if like, you're only eating three or four meals a day and they're bigger and you're like, I, I agree. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I can do this. Whereas the six or five meals a day, it's like, Oh, almonds and a small little apple. Awesome. Right. <laughs> Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing fun about that whatsoever. And then you're probably more prone to overeating if you're always constantly eating small little things because you're like, oh, I could probably use something else and calories spill over and boom. <laughs> I would agree. Uh, so how do you do fasting for, like you were saying with your athletes for digestion? Like, 
Yeah, so I mean, there's actually really good research that in like prolonged fasting that digestive enzymes will upregulate. Um, and so, I mean, I've got a few studies on it. So really, like one of the first things I see, like when you know digestion gets really shitty, is sometimes on like a Sunday morning, I'll have them fast till like eleven or twelve o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's somebody that's used to getting up eating at seven or eight, um, and like so, we'll just prolong that. We'll do it like once per week, or even like once every other week. Um, you know, it, it sometimes it can become a regular thing that we keep in, or sometimes it can be a short term, like three, four week thing. Um, it just kind of depends from individual to individual. Um, you know, some um, some fat loss clients, I will actually prolong the fast um, on Sunday until like let's say three, four o'clock. Um, so it becomes like a lower calorie day, and we do get the benefit of some additional fasting. Okay. Yeah. So again, it's, it's application specific, right? I mean, it's each person, but so we're taking the general benefits. We're kind of taking the science and we're applying it. Yeah. Cause it almost seems now like in the industry, like the fasting is kind of getting a little bit more popular, but not so extreme. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, chatting with Georgie fear and her book, the lean habits. She was talking about, you know, maybe you should start focusing on maybe just three to four meals per day and space them out every four hours. So you don't have to constantly be eating and worrying about food. And you still get a little bit of the benefit of the fasting by that fourth hour. Yep. And uh, I think the other one, too, is like managing your hunger. Because sometimes, you know, you get that little like squirm in your stomach. But like, are you actually hungry or, you know, you smelt something down the street and you're like, yeah, I want to eat now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, conversely on that, right, I would say some people, you know, you could eat every hour on the hour if that suits you. Or some people, like you said, it's great to wake up and not even think about food till like one o'clock. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it really just depends like on habits. Um, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, again, what can you do sustainably long term, and then let's use effective scientific, scientific principles and build that into your lifestyle. I really think that's the way you create a successful diet. Yeah. Um, for the next question, and I kind of wanted to know what would your like prescription for this person's diet, if they were like an endurance athlete, like saying like a cyclist or something that, mm-hmm. you know, has a competition of like at least 200 kilometers over a weekend and they want to f- be able to fuel themselves so they don't like hit the wall or anything like that. So again, so first thing we're going to look at is, all right, well, what's your dietary history and what have you tried yeah. before? Right? Like that's, are you somebody that's uh, like, for instance, I had somebody recently do a Spartan race. And while that's not at all on the same level as what you just described, it is pretty long, pretty like long duration, right? And this guy, like his fucking calories are like 1600 because he's in that like reverse diet setting I'm talking about. Yeah. So like for me, I'm like, well, fuck, dude, more like bigger dinner the night before. And, you know, I had him basically bring gel packs to have every two to three hours. Um, like it was literally that simple because he's not like super dialed in. Um, you know, conversely, if we're talking like world-class athletes, really like I would basically figure out in their training how fast they're burning through carbohydrates. Um, and like we could literally do tests, right? So every time they do like a distance run, I would actually encourage them to get to the point where they felt like blood sugar was getting a little bit low. Um, and we would monitor that every time that they are going out and we'll offset that um, with carbohydrate ingestion. Um, the one thing that I think the biggest mistake I see and, and, you know, to generalize this application is people start trying to load carbohydrates at 24 hours out. Um, your loading window starts 48 hours out because glycogen synthesis and resynthesis happens on like a 24 to 36 hour window. 
So you may not be getting the full effect of your carbohydrates if you're only consuming them the day before, right? Because let's say like the carbs you're taking in at noon, two, three o'clock, they may not be fully synthesized until that same time the following day, at which point maybe you're finishing your race. Yeah, I think a lot of people fall victim to that because like, that's what they've heard other people do is like, oh, I yeah. got a carb load the night before. And, yeah, and, and that's not going to do shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's gonna, it'll make you feel good the day after the race or it might help recovery from the race, but it's not really going to give you the adequate amount of fuel. Yeah. What do you think about like fat loading for a long distance event or something like that? If it's purely aerobic, I like it. Because remember, like the only times you're going to be using fat as fuel is in that purely aerobic setting. So again, I deal mostly with CrossFitters. Um, I don't deal with very many purely aerobic athletes. Um, so I don't do it at all. In fact, when we get to um, really important times for the CrossFitters, be it like the regionals or the games, uh, a lot of times we are reducing dietary fat intake uh, in favor of getting them more carbohydrates. And that's actually done from a hormone perspective as well as a fuel perspective. Um, However, if it was, again, if it was purely aerobic, yeah, I'm a big fan of a fat load. I think it's great. Okay. Um, actually, I watched the um, the documentary on the CrossFit Games on Netflix. Uh-huh. I think it was like 2013 or 14 that they did. Yep. How does their diet look at like, because it was what, four days or three days back to back with like this mm-hmm. gruesome workouts. Like what would you <laughs> <laughs> prescribe them to be able to like hit it hard the next time that they're in and not like just crumble apart? So the most overlooked piece by those guys, and it sounds so crazy, but remember that like CrossFit's very ner- like central nervous system demanding, probably more so than any other sport. Like they're going max effort, just shy of red line every time they're on the floor, and so that's very sympathetic nervous system demanding. Um, and if they're not getting that sympathetic to parasympathetic shift immediately after training, they're prolonging that cortisol response. And depending on how you've been training, what your nutrition was like coming into the games, you can blow through your cortisol really quickly and you can be fucked by day three, day four, day five. Um, So the biggest thing with them is what are you doing immediately post-workout? Getting in like a a high molecular weight carbohydrate shake. Um, A lot of them are in the three to one, four to one carb to protein ratio. Um, To give you an example, you know, last year, well, I still work with Travis Mayer, but he took 10th at the games last year. Um, and we were doing hundred grams of carbs and 25 grams of protein after every workout, um, going into the games, he was eating about 700 to 750 grams of carbs every day. Um, while we were at the games, we basically lived on protein carbs all day. And then we fat loaded each night, um, basically just to slow down the rapid digestion of the carbs because he was burning through them so quickly. Um, so we weren't trying to use fats for fuel. We were basically putting that in there just to slow that digestion down a little bit. Um, and we did it actually in the form of burgers and fries. Um, so, but that's how many calories, you know, we were trying to replace. I mean, these guys are doing three and four workouts a day. Um, and then when you look at the accumulation of fatigue and the calorie deficit over three to four days, it's crazy. Like it, you know, sometimes you have to have that. I'm not saying burgers and fries are healthy, but when we're at the games, health is out the window. Well, it's like Michael Phelps and his uh, diet before any kind of Olympic Games. And I think I read an article where he was like eating a full pizza and just like lathering mayonnaise on it just to keep up with his calories. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, you know, you look at his setting, right? And thermodynamics and being in a pool, it's even worse. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, when you're, I I say this in my seminar all the time, you know, you got to draw a line, a continuum, right? And if you picture it on the left, far left end, it's health. And on the far right end, it's performance. 
And you got to figure out where do you sit in that continuum? Because if you're the best performing athlete in the world, I can assure you internally, you're not the healthiest. Mm -hmm. And if you're the healthiest motherfucker in the world, I can assure you, you're not the best athlete in the world. Yeah. Right. So you got to figure out where do you want to sit in that continuum and what are you okay sacrificing? And so for, for most of my guys, we try to periodize that, right? So in performance times, it's purely performance. It gives zero fucks about health, right? Obviously, I don't want you like really shitty blood work, but I'm willing to make some sacrifices. Coming out of that, we are going through a recovery phase where we are, pro, where we are prioritizing health, getting your body functioning as best as we can before we begin the off-season training. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, you know, just like you have in training, a periodized model. I have a periodized model of nutrition for athletes as well. I've read that an article about actually like I guess you could f- put it under like flexible dieting but it's almost like if you had to change your diet the way that your training plan is where you know you build up for 4 weeks and you go for a recovery week like I've seen I can't remember who wrote the article but sometimes what he did with his clients was that you know for 3 months I'm going to get you to eat really really clean and then on that mm-hmm. fourth month you know eat whatever you want but don't go pig out just don't worry about what you're eating. Just eat food as it is to kind of give your mental, like a little mental break. And then again, mm-hmm. another three months are you going to be really strict and then a full month of just going with the flow. Yeah. And so that's like, I think that's becoming popularized just to be known as very simply a diet break. Yeah. Um, and you know, Eric Helms champions that quite a bit. Um, Alberto Nunez as well. Um, I, I think it's a great idea. I think mentally for a lot of people, it's great. Um, but again, I'll go back to the concept of if you really need to shift your methods after only three months of doing something, um, are you really doing something that that's appropriate for you? Um, now, I think the article you're alluding to is involved in a body comp- uh, a bodybuilding competition, mm-hmm. and that's a completely different animal, right? So I don't think that anybody that diets for a bodybuilding competition should expect to do that diet long term. Um, but, you know, uh, again, it's important for everybody listening to understand, okay, well, there's a, co- a completely different application. Um, I need to know who this article is written for. Yeah. Now, in the CrossFit world, like, the paleo diet is really huge. Like, what's your opinion on about that, if even it's, <laughs> if it, even if it's worthwhile? Um, I think it's worthwhile for people that want to live a really long time. Um, and for people with autoimmune disorders, um, I do not think it has any merit or application in a performance sport. Um, in fact, I think it's the root cause of a lot of the shit that we're seeing in CrossFit now in terms of metabolic damages or, you know, metabolic adaptations, um, thyroid output being shit, um, adrenal dysfunction. I actually attribute that to the paleo diet. Yeah, because you see like any kind of CrossFit workout and it's like, it's grueling, it sucks. And I was like, how can they meet the demands of that much energy with just the paleo? Like it doesn't like make sense. Well, they're leveraging cortisol. Yeah. And that's it, right? They're running purely on hormone. But when that hormone tank is done, well, guess what happens? Adrenal fatigue. And that's why you're starting to see so much adrenal fatigue in CrossFit. Because people are trying to live on not enough calories or not enough starch. And... Do that for too long, and you're uh, you're, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, do you believe in adrenal fatigue? Because there's some people that are like, "Oh, that's not researched enough. It's not actually a thing." Blah blah. Because it's almost you hear it more from naturopaths than like mm-hmm. actual medical doctors. Like, what's your take on adrenal fatigue? 
So I, um, I don't believe that adrenal fatigue is medically accepted yet, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know in, so like I went through like the FDN program and I know that like what you can test in terms of lab work is you can look at like a DHEA to cortisol ratio um, and you can tell the stage of adrenal dysfunction that somebody is in. Um, so whether you want to call it adrenal fatigue, whether you want to call it adrenal dysfunction, or whether you want to look at the values, um, you know, relative to the ratio of DHA to cortisol, I really don't give a fuck what you want to call it. Um, but I do believe there is something measurable that you can test that can tell you the state, um, of cortisol function, um, which is directly correlated to adrenal function. Yeah, I like absolutely hate the people that are like, oh, if it's not research enough, then that's it doesn't even exist to me. It's like right. you got to be a little bit more open. Like I'm, I'm open to anything, and I'm always willing to try whatever's out there. And I kind of just look at it as if you're getting more information about yourself, and maybe take one or two things from it, and it might actually improve your life. Right. Well, I mean, it's like what you know. We could sit here and say like low testosterone is like I, I think that like medically it's termed as like hypogonadism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what if we didn't call it hypogonadism? What if we're like, that's not medically accepted, but yet we can go look at the lab value and tell you that your free testosterone and total testosterone are low, right? So whether you want to fucking call a lab value a name or whether you just want to call it a lab value, it doesn't matter. Like it's semantics to me, but the lab values have merit. And I think there's information that can be had from reading lab values. Um, You know, and I, I just... I don't know why the medical world's so up in arms about it. Yeah, it's tough because, like, I kind of want to, like, see a world where there's, you know, there's medical doctors and naturopathic doctors actually working together. And, like, I know one that, like, after talking to him for a couple hours, he, every time he gets a new patient, he'll actually contact directly to their MD doctor in hopes that they could work together. Yeah. He's like, it's such a small percentage of them actually, like, yeah, sure, let's do it. It'll be a good idea. So I don't know if it's like in their culture or something that, you know, you're a top dog and no one like can touch you or something. Yeah, no, I, uh, I agree. I think it's, um, it's really interesting, man. I mean, I, I tend to, you know, just, I I think naturopaths tend to be a little more open-minded. Um, so I tend to have better conversations with them, but you know, again, I I think in every profession and every walk of life and what we do and in this industry, I think that we all need to be open-minded and, you know, I mean, 10, 10, 11 years ago, somebody could have told Lane he was fucking crazy for, you know, macros and flexible dieting. And here we are 11 years later, and it's like the whole craze in the dieting industry right now. So, you know, I think that uh, just because uh, uh, somebody tells you you're wrong doesn't mean that you are. And I think that it's, you know, it's the, the basis for us moving forward as a society. And I think also like people's careers like eventually evolve because now, what I've been noticing is that when people are deciding whether or not to go to med school or naturopathic school, they're actually taking the time to research. Whereas like maybe 10 years ago, you know, people are like, Oh, if I'm going to med school, I'm going to med school. I'm not thinking about anything else. So now you're either getting more educated, you know, kids going into naturopathic medicine because they chose to, because they looked into it and said, Hey, I think this is a good idea. Right. Well, and in the U S like the healthcare system and the way insurance reimburses right now, like it's actually like you're, you're actually seeing record lows in terms of enrollment in med schools because of how they're making money. Um, and it's just, uh, they're making far less money than they ever have. And a lot of that is relative to, you know, the way, like I said, insurance reimburses and how hard that's becoming. Um, so 
Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, man. I mean, I'm I'm very big on like generations carrying over to the next generations, and like I mentioned, I think that you know when you look at paleo and its popularization in CrossFit, it was like 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. and here we are, you know what, 2016, so eight years later, um, and and we're now paying the price for what that generation laid the foundation of. So I'm, you know, if I had to guess, I think seven to eight years from now, you're going to see some really good high quality functioning athletes. Um, because I think that the nutrition principles that are being promoted right now are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so last question, what is like your next big project speaking engagements or, and where can people find you online and websites and stuff like that? First things um, people can find me is um, jasonphillipsnutrition.com, and that's Phillips with two L's. Um, Speaking engagements, I am in Vero Beach tomorrow, um, and let's see, Palm Beach on Sunday. Um, I'm in Chicago at O'Hare CrossFit on September 24th. I'm speaking at the Cascade Classic on the 25th, which is in Seattle. I believe I'm in Omaha the following weekend. I believe I'm in Dallas the following weekend. Um, but all those dates are going to be listed on my website. Um, I believe I'm pretty booked through October. Uh, and then November, December are pretty low. And then I think that you know January is obviously a huge time. Um, might pop over the UK in November. Um, if you're not in an area um, and you can't make it to one of my seminars, I do have one that I videoed for sale on the website as well. Um, that's gotten really good reviews as well. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Um, and then I'm sorry, you asked one more question and I feel like I completely just spaced on it. Um, projects. If you oh, next yeah. big, next big project. Yeah. So I just launched a company called mission six. Um, you know, as we're talking about this right now, we actually just released the first major video in, um, in the company today. And it's actually showing the third fittest woman in the world. Um, and her journey, um, or her quote-unquote mission to win the CrossFit Games in 2017. So um, I can't spill the beans on what the company is right now. Um, It's pretty secret. It's locked up. But um, I'm pretty excited about it. I can tell you that you, you know, the the people that are involved and the athletes that are involved, um, the world will have unprecedented access to them um, because of the way that we're approaching this project. So I'm very, very excited about that. I just got back from Iceland earlier this week. Um, and spending time with Sarah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the big project right now. Um, it's going to change the game in, in a few aspects in CrossFit. So I'm um, pretty pumped about that. That's awesome. And you sound super busy. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's, uh, it's a grind, man. I mean, yeah. you know what? If, uh, if, if Gary Vaynerchuk can travel like he does, man, I can, I can work with my, uh, my crazy schedule. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, man, like somebody asked me the other day, like, doesn't it get tiring to travel like all the time? And it's like, I guess it would if like everywhere I went, I didn't get to like interact with people and truly create change. Like I, like I said in the beginning, like I'm so, I'm so massively passionate about creating that change that it's like, it's a labor of love and sure I'm human. Don't get me wrong. Like I get tired, you know, like I, I just took the red eye last night and of course I was tired. Um, but there's something super energizing about getting in a conversation with something you love and just being able to put that out there. Oh, I totally get it. Like after I do these podcast interviews, I'm like, Oh man, what do I, what can I do next? Like yeah. you, you just, it yeah. gets addictive and then, you know, 
I can easily work every day for like 14, 15 hours. And I'm like, geez, I maybe should stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree, man. I mean, like I'm like the exact same way, you know, on, on like seminar days, like we'll go six, seven hours and then it's like, it, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just like so fired up. I'm like, man, like I gotta go do more. I gotta go talk to more people. Yeah. So yeah, it's fun. Perfect. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy uh, life to actually yeah. chat with us. And no, uh, man, my pleasure. So that was the end of episode 16 with Jason Phillips. Hopefully, you guys all enjoyed that one. I just wanted to let everyone know that if you are listening um, to this podcast through SoundCloud, you do have other options. You can find this uh, podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. So. If you're an iPhone or iPad user, you can just go to your iTunes and search up Cut the Shit, Get Fit, and you can actually subscribe, and you'll actually get a notification every time uh, I post a new episode. You can also find me on Google Play if you're an Android user, so you can just, same thing, search it up, subscribe, boom, you're done. And recently, I just uploaded the podcast to Stitcher Radio, and for those who don't know, Stitcher Radio is an app that you can put on your phone, whatever um, Android or Apple you are, and it's actually a built-in app in some um, cars now. So I believe that GM announced that all new uh, GM models will have a built-in Stitcher Radio um, app, so you can actually just find me straight into your car, and uh, you can just listen to every single interview as you drive to work, which is pretty awesome. So if you have any questions, feel free to email me at rafael at empowerhp.ca, and we'll see you guys next week.